Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Are you recording? The Howie Games Artist Series rides again. You're beauty. Thanks for joining us on the journey. Welcome back. Four more episodes coming to your ears. Four very cool cats. Tuesday will be the drop day for the next few weeks of the Artist Series, including the player profiles. Your normal Howie Games episodes will be out on Thursday as per normal. So, the Artist Series. Sport and art of varying varieties. What else is there? You are listening to episode 17 of the Howie Games Artist Series Part A. And to get things going, we are launching into a rock star. A rock star, a real-life rock star. You do not meet too many. Give it up for Bernard Fanning. Powderfinger, fronted by Bernard, were a huge band. Five number one albums in a row and a swag of hit songs. If you hit your Powderfinger playlist on Spotify, it is amazing how many massive songs they had, how many hits they had, how many songs you'll know, how many lyrics you'll remember. But it's Bernard is a massively successful musician. Along with Powderfinger, his solo work has been huge, but Bernard is as modest as they come. He is not your archetypical rock and roll god, which he could be, which he should be, but he chooses not to be. And as passionate as Bernard is about music, he has another obsession, a sport that is close to my heart that he is well and truly invested in. More on that in the episode. Enjoy the story of Bernard Fanning, understated rock star. Welcome to the Howie Games, to a genuine rock star. You don't meet many in person, but this man is one. He's fronted one of Australia's biggest bands, Powderfinger. He's dominated his own work as well with some very, very successful albums. His name is Bernard Fanning. He has a secret, which we'll get to shortly, that a lot of people won't realise that he has an obsession away from music, but I am pumped to have this man on the show. Bern, how are you, mate? It's great to see you. Good, Howie. How are you doing, mate? I am tremendously excited about getting you on, but just to set the scene, you're up Byron Bayway. I'm in Byron, yeah, at home. How's life in Byron? It's pretty good, actually. Overall, pretty good. I'm on the road at the moment, so I'm doing this thing called the Red Hot Summer Tour, which is every weekend for 20 weekends, which is the most, actually the most amount of touring I've done, not shows, but it's every, it shows every pretty much Saturday and Sunday for 20 weekends from January to May. And how's it been going? Are you, like, I, I want to think that you're out till 4am every night afterwards being a rock star but or, or, are you, or are you tucking yourself up with a hot chocolate at the end of the show? Like what happens when you're, I hate to say it, but like me, a middle-aged rock star? Yeah, well, it's the reality is a little bit more sedate than people kind of <laughs> like to imagine. I mean, at the moment we're playing uh, at... We, we go on stage at seven, so we're off yep. stage at eight. Right. And we either hang around and watch Paul Kelly play or or go home generally because uh, wow. it's usually travel to do the next day as well. I actually gave drinking a rest in, um, in October, so I've been a very good boy on this tour so far. I've been behaving myself, just trying to stay in shape and be able to do the shows properly. You know, people pay a lot of money to come and come to gigs. So you've got to kind of 
make sure that you you top your game when you're playing. Um, but also, you know, I've done my fair share of the drinking before, during, and after shows kind of scenario. So, um, you know, I'd rather wake up feeling okay. Yeah, well, as I say, that's what happens when you get towards middle age. When so I, I um I was chatting to a couple of mates the other day that love their music and and are massive fans of you and your solo work and Powderfinger, and they started reeling off to me, Burn, oh, I was listening to Sunsets for the first time when I was on a date with this girl. Or we won a cricket grand final and, and we had um, like a dog blasting around the change room. And they had these memories, and it made me smile. What is it like when people come up to you constantly and say that you are a soundtrack to particular moments in their life? It must be. It's it must the best, be. man. It's yeah. That's, that's kind of that's one of the most rewarding things. Is it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know it's pretty cliche to to say that, but the whole thing is really about communicating an idea, you know, and if if you get people to latch on to that idea, then that's kind of, that's the purpose. I mean, I guess I should rewind a little bit. It's, for me, songwriting's ultimately a pretty selfish pursuit. You know, like um, I, when I was younger, I probably was uh, more more so than now geared towards the idea that of wanting and and needing people to like what I did, um, whereas, which is, you know, preferable at any point in your life. But now it's more I really do it for myself and it's, it's, it's about the process. Well, it, like, the impact you have, I, I'll, I'll tell you a story now, great man. During COVID, I was homeschooling and my wife and I were going crazy yeah. trying to homeschool and I was like, right, I'm going to, try and learn a new skill and I have no musical background. I was like, right, I'm going to learn to play the guitar. Mm-hmm. So what was that? Three years ago. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm no good, but I love it. I love the concentration it takes. So two weeks ago, two local blokes that I know, Paul and Daz, we'll call them, they'll be horrified because everyone where I live will know who they are. They're like, yeah, we're trying to play the guitar as well. So I said, come round. And we sat in the garage, right? Three blokes with no musical talent and sat there for two hours and had such a good two hours, mate. And like, it was like trying to sing in front of your mate for the first time. And it was frightening. Anyway, your name came up because Songbird, one of them said, I love the song Songbird. So there's the three of us sitting there. Butchering your song, and I said I'm speaking to him in a couple of weeks, and they're like, "No, nah, no, you're not." I said, "I am." They like, you, you, they said, "You can't mention this." So sorry, boys, but <laughs> sorry, th- there's fellas. three middle-aged dudes in a garage singing something that you have composed and written. Like, it's such a gift that just gives and gives, and can still be giving in 50 years when someone discovers one of your songs. I, I, mate, I, I think it's a it's a brilliant gift you can give to people, and you have given to people. Well, thanks, mate. I mean, it, it, it's the same for all art, really, isn't it? And anything creative that you kind of you're you're in a situation where you're inventing something. Yes. 
and it's something that hasn't existed before. And that, to me, is the the really fun part of it, that you've got this puzzle that you've got to kind of put together. Um, and if you get it right, then it often impacts on other people, you know, which is really gratifying. That's what it did to me. That's why I became a musician because I listened to music all the whole time from when I was a little kid growing up, kind of imagining myself in the shoes of the author of who had, who had written it, you know, and imagining not rock star dreaming kind of thing that it was me singing it, but imagining what my circumstances were and how it related to that song. So, I mean, I've always wanted to make things that had that kind of lasting effect for me, for me, so that I I could listen to it 20 years down the track and and still enjoy it. And don't get me wrong, there's, I mean, I'm aware and, and totally conscious of the fact that I've written lots of stinkers as well and recorded them and released them. Um, but you don't really know that until later. At the time, there's there's kind of a, I've spoken to a few songwriters about this and it's almost that sort of thing where every time you're writing a song, it's got to feel like the best song you've ever written, the most important thing that you've had to say or do, you know so that you you commit to it. So it's a great description of the art that has been a massive part of your life. Just just hold the music for a moment. We'll get back to music. I, I mentioned you have a, <laughs> a secret. So I don't know how secret I'm it is, a, mate. <laughs> well, no, it's probably not, but people won't realise the the amount of obsession you have, and I want to explain this to people before I mention the subject. So um, I got in touch with you two and a half years ago about doing this podcast, and, and we've gone back and forth a couple of times, including I was walking around at home where I live in Barwon Heads along the bluff with my wife, um, and you rang me, and she didn't know who it was, and we chatted for 45 minutes about... <laughs> World Series cricket, <laughs> and and I got off the phone, and she thought it had to be either Gilly or Mike Hussey, the two, especially Hussey, the most cricket obsessed bloke I know, who can talk cricket all day every day. And she's like, "Oh, is that about the? Was that Hussey or Gilly?" I was like, "That was Bernard Fanning." She's like. The bloke from Powderfinger, I said, yes. She said, no, no. Yeah, she actually said, you're shitting me. And I was like, no, no, that was Bernard. So you you are, and I spend my life with cricketers, you are maybe the most cricket-obsessed person I know. <laughs> where where did this, I don't know if you recall the conversation, like we were going back to Len Pascoe and Max Walker. Oh, hell yeah. It, it, the where days. did it start? Where, tell me about you and cricket, Bern. Well, I grew up in a pretty cricket-obsessed family. So yep. um, my dad loved cricket and my mum as well. They were both members at, at the Gabba. My eldest brother, yep. he was a good cricketer. He was playing first grade district cricket in Brizzy when he was 17, so just when he left school straight into that. Hmm. And that was 76, 77. Um, and so I was only seven six or seven. So that was, you know, I mean, he had a big impact on my life and my brother, immediately our brother who was a year older. You know, we played cricket from, I guess, 
the day after the NRL grand final yeah. until the end of the Shield season or whatever it was, you know. Because well, you couldn't be watching the IPL or England playing no. India or in, around the world. So what, tell me about you as a cricketer. Tell me, uh, did you bat or bowl? Who would you first play for? What, what was your best day? Uh, I played for Western Suburbs District Cricket Club in Brisbane. Um, okay. Out at Graceville there. And yeah, what, what was your first bat, Burnt? Uh, my first bat... Uh, would have been a f- just some kind of crappy hand-me-down. Um, right. My brother got a slazenger, a polyarmored slazenger when we were about oh. nine or ten. That was, but I wasn't allowed to use it very much. <laughs> um, and then John, my oldest brother, went to England on a uh, Queensland Colts tour. Okay. And he was in the in the same side as like Mocker, Carl Rackman, and Greg Ritchie. Those. Those blokes. Oh, the fat cat. Fat cat. Um, yeah. So all of those fellas. And when he came home, they went to the Stuart Surridge factory when they were there and he brought me back a junior jumbo, which was just like mind-blowing. And I was a I was an absolute weed in those days. So that would have been like 80, 81 sort of thing. I would have only been 10. It, and it was a junior. I could still hardly pick it up. Um, (laughs) but that was a very treasured possession uh, for a long time. So, but, yeah, I just played club cricket at Wests uh, and in primary school um, and just obviously mountains of backyard cricket at home with my brother and and Forbesy, another bloke from up the road. Oh, Forbesy. Um, Yeah, Forbesy. And uh, who was three years older than us, so he'd be, you know he'd get a ton pretty much every day. I'd be none for 160. <laughs> so. Back to the top of your mark, son. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so and then at high school, I just I I played you know just school cricket until I was 17. Played first 11 cricket at school, and then that was it. Then I retired. What what was your greatest day? Your, your best bowling performance, your oh, best man. innings. There's no time for modesty. What, what uh, was your best th- day out? I do remember. It would have been like under tens or something like that. Yeah. And I got seven for eight. I was opening the bowling. I got seven for eight, and I was seven for four until I got edged past the keeper for four. <laughs> um, Still a fair day though. Yeah, it's a pretty good day. So, oh mate, I was I was a very average cricketer. To be honest, I I couldn't uh, do any skill particularly well. I was a good fielder. And who were you when you were like me, similar age, um, turning on Channel Nine and Richie and Bill and yeah. Tony and Chapelli were there? Who 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 were your idols? Who were you? Uh, and we'll get to the fact you've been privileged enough to spend a lot of time with the modern cricketers. But who yeah. who were your guys? Oh uh, well, all all of those guys, the Chapels, um, DK. Lily, um, Marsh, all of them, you know, uh, a little bit, and but especially the West Indies. So Viv, Clive Lloyd. I tried to actually talk my wife into calling our son Clive, but she wouldn't have it. So <laughs> After the great guy, Arnon, big Clive Lloyd, the yeah. super cat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I loved Clive It didn't Lloyd. work? Didn't well. My wife's Spanish, so it doesn't work in Spanish. It becomes clive in Spanish, which is not not as cool as Clive. So, um, um, yeah. So he's Fred instead. Right. Um, 
But, yeah, I mean, and all the bowlers, obviously, as well. Andy Roberts, Michael Holding. I mean, Whispering Death. That guy was just, he was just so pure to watch, wasn't he? Yes. I mean, yeah, we were really right. spoiled for, in terms of the, like, the natural kind of raw ability that those guys had. And now, now you know, they're so carefully managed um, that the actions are a little bit more homogenised. Yeah. yeah. So did you, were you, a, were you a, uh, a kid that would go to the Gabba test? Oh, yeah, we would go to, we went to Shield games. So You we, went to Shield games? Yeah, well, because mum and dad were in the trust. So we okay. would play cricket on Saturday morning and then if there was a Shield game on, we'd go in the afternoon or maybe on Sunday. Not necessarily all day, but, you know, somewhere I still have my autograph book, this little brown leather book. And so if you're at the trust, the members at the Gabba used to be right next, there was a little gate to the dressing room. And um, so we'd just go and hang out there. And one of my strongest memories as a child actually is, was getting Joel Garner's autograph and being like literally being at his belt. That he was that I was that small and he was that tall, but yeah. I've still got that autograph book somewhere. Um, so that was a big deal for us in those days, you know. Mate, I remember going. I don't know why. Kmart in Hobart. We were down there for Christmas holidays, and the West Indies must have been playing a one day. And um, I remember going down there, and Viv was there, and Clive, and Joel Garner, and yeah, you know, I, I was probably seven, and he was. I'd never seen a man like it. Yeah. Like, just, just the size of you. Like when you're operating at seven like you, you're yeah. like you're looking up and this bloke's still just blocking out the sun style material. Just awesome, mate. Amazing. Yeah, and like gods, like absolute yeah. gods. I had the same experience. I think it was David Jones in uh, in Brisbane. Yeah. The Windies were there and, you know, you could go in and meet them and get an autograph or whatever and they were getting everyone to show them their stance. And this must have been 1980 or 81, I guess. We'd caught the bus into town, Paul and I, <laughs> and um, they gave me a bat and I stood there and Bruce, I was really into Bruce Laird at that point. So I had big left elbow sticking out in my stance and one of the Stuffy windies was Laird. like, Bruce Laird, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. Yeah. We, we, so so when you are, what's it like then when... Um, and I know you're, you're you're pretty tight with Adam Gilchrist and various the cricketers. What's it like then when, due to your rock stardom, you are are brought into the inner sanctum and, and you're within, you know, the change room, etc. Tell me about experiences like that. Oh, it's it's incredible. I've I had the great fortune when my dad was still alive. We went to the Gabba to see Steve Waugh's side playing. Um, against New Zealand and it was when Fleming had just taken over as captain. Yep. Um, So I can't remember. It must have been early 2000s, early mid-2000s. My nephews actually played cricket with John Buchanan's kids. So we knew John and John was the coach at the time and Australia were bowling. It was the last day. It was kind of petering out into a draw and Dad and I, while Australia were bowling, were sitting in the players' box with John Buchanan and... um, and Lou Vincent was the twelfth uh, man for New Zealand, and kind mm. of got chatting to him. He was right next to us, pretty friendly bloke. Um, and and he said to me, uh, "We're going to declare." And I was like, "What?" 
they were, you know, there were there were no chance of losing the game at all. Um, yeah. It was, I think it was the fifth day, and um, there was a bit of rain around and whatnot. And I was like, "That's madness." I was telling Dad, and he's like, "Yeah, right, okay." And uh, anyway, there's a rain delay, and then while the rain delay was, you know, 15, 20 minutes into the rain delay, John Buchanan said to us, "Come down to the rooms and meet meet Steve and whatever." I'd met Steve, I think, briefly at the Arias or something like that, but never really chatted to him. Anyway, we went down to the rooms. It was pitch black. Buchanan turns the lights on and Langer, McGrath, Steve Waugh and, and Brett Lee are lying on the ground asleep. <laughs> he turns the lights on. They all wake up. They all stand up, put their caps on, put their baggy greens on. It's classic. And, um, and so naturally I immediately told Steve Waugh they were about to declare. And he was like, bullshit, no way. There's no way they're going to declare. They declared at the end of the rain delay. But it was awesome to to go with Dad, especially because he'd been such a big cricket fan. You know, he'd seen Bradman and all that stuff. Dad was born in 1926, so so he was an old bloke. And um, they were so good to him. They were, they were, they really, they really took care to make sure that he felt comfortable and, you know, it showed him the baggy green and got a photo with it and all that stuff that doesn't seem very important but was was a really cool thing to do. It was a really good lesson in in how to treat people and how special those moments are for, are for people, you know. And people like you and I remember meeting Joel Garner see it yeah. in our brain because the, the, the passing um, of Warney as a cricket fan, how did it? affect you, Burn, when this larger-than-life, you know, as big a character as we've seen in the game was no longer with us? Oh, mate, it was like like everyone. I thought it was incredibly sad. But, you know, to be honest, characters like him, it's almost like i I got to say I was surprised but I was sort of also not surprised somehow mm. because mm. he's just lived this ridiculous life, you know, of just... Everything's everything's exaggerated in his life, even to the point of, I guess, the way he died and everything. That that um, it kind of almost contributes to to the legend, the fact that he's not here anymore. You know, it's it's really sad from the point of view, obviously, of his family, people that know him, all of you guys that are really good mates with him and everything, all of all of his colleagues. But from the cricket point of view, it's it's a shame because he was just a genius analyst. He was so good at at knowing what might happen, you know. And as as we saw, he pre- he actually predicted it a few times, time and you know. time again. He yeah. I, but really um, I mean, I, I met him a couple of times. He was always a really charming, super nice guy to me. So always always really decent and welcoming. So, he loved his music too. Like he yeah, was big yeah, he was into big, music. He was a big music fan. He was a big Coldplay fan, I think. He's mates with yeah, Martin, yeah. So Yeah, absolutely. We actually, um, speaking of Coldplay, we we did the big day out in two thousand and one, I think. And those guys had just released their first single. They were just starting to blow up. Yellow was the song that was out and it was kind of going nuts all around the world. And um we sort of got to know those guys backstage and eventually 
you know, came to realise that they were pretty big sports fans as well and cricket fans in particular. So we ended up, we had an Ashes in, uh, in Perth. So Did the you? last, yeah, there the is last a story thing I want yeah, to hear. Yeah, about play. Right. Which we naturally destroyed them. What's Chris Martin like with battle ball in hand? Rubbish. <laughs> good, 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 good. I, I think um, I think Ed Sheeran's obsessed with the cricket too. Oh, I, is like, he? Yeah, right. Yeah, okay. I know Shane spent a bit of time and yeah, right. um, I remember him telling me a story where, like you were talking about with your father, he, he went and met Ed's father and bowled to Ed's father oh, wow. and the impact it had yeah, yeah. was um, – and, and so – Cricket now, we'll get to music, Burn, mm. but cricket now, does it still capture your imagination like it did in those days when it wasn't so... Organised. Organised, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, where 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 the only cricket you could see was the first day at the Gabba and then yeah. at the end of the Tri-Nation series you were done. Does it still capture you? Yes, it does. Test cricket in particular, mm. I still think it's the the ultimate kind of pursuit and entertainment in that regard because it, because of the amount of variables it has. It's like no other game and you bring the weather into it. You also bring wherever you play in the world into it. All of those factors make it just so interesting. Um, and it took me a while with 2020, but I persevered and watched it every night over Christmas, every every year. <laughs> good man, good man. <laughs> um because I thought it was just a ding fest, you know, at first. And I I think as the game developed, everyone started to understand that it's really about the bowling captain. That's really what the key yes. to T20 cricket is and that every ball matters. Every single ball, every field placement, all of that stuff. So there's a it does have that kind of shrunken all all of the all of the interesting things about Test cricket and and uh, red ball cricket are kind of condensed into a you know palatable couple of hours package. Um, yeah, I, I love it when the um, when the captain's mic'd up. Oh, it's it's so good. That stuff to them, Finch or Kawaja. Yeah, that's also the the interesting thing that differentiates it from test cricket as well. That I, I don't think that should ever happen in test cricket. I mean, no, I, I, I agree. never say never, but I like the sanctity of that, that it's kind of chess happening on the field and that whereas there's not as much at stake in a, in a BBL game, you know, um, and it is awesome to get that insight from someone like Uzi or someone like that who, mm. who reads the game so well. I mean, especially... Yeah. Because we've always had the benefit of past players, you know, with Richie, obviously king um, of of all of that stuff, but all of their experience still doesn't account for what's happening on the field. And also, I mean, it's changed a bit now that it's, you know, the, the commentary teams have kind of revolutionised a little bit and there's there's the younger guys that, that did play T20 cricket in there. Um, but yeah, what's happening on the field? It's so it's so interesting because also that idea that you you actually they all know each other inside out. There's so much analysis and so much knowledge of each player, and so the depending on how the seal, the field is set, the batsman kind of knows that there's probably only two balls that can come mm. in. 
you know, mm. it's either a bouncer or a wide Yorker outside of stump or something. So I just find that pretty fascinating that you, that everyone knows what's about to happen, but the variables are all still there. So, so I think people can understand now when I said this man's got an obsession with things <laughs> other than music. So yeah, what, uh, further to that, I did read somewhere that as a young fellow, you thought about moving into the area of sport journalism. Is that a true oh, story? Oh, yeah. That's, I, when I left school, I, I went to Uni of Queensland and did yeah. journalism. Well, yeah. I was enrolled, I should say. I wasn't present very often. Did you I turn up? the worst student ever. Oh, I wasn't great at that. Um, <laughs> I was good at hanging around the Rip Factory and the, you know, the, the union bar and all that stuff. <laughs> So but I was kind of obsessed by music by then and I I just didn't really have much focus. Right. So as a sports journal, who would you have, who was your, your pin-up? Is there someone that you thought, all oh, right, I'd like to be there? Oh, probably Richie. Richie. Right. Yeah. You'd have been a good Richie. You'd have been well, good Richie in the off-white or the bone. I mean, Richie was an actual journalist as well. Yes, You know, he wasn't absolutely. just a cricket journalist. So I kind of, I mean, I was really into the news and all of that stuff and always have been. Um, so... Just because I'm a sticky beak, basically. I mean, you kind of got to be if you're a journalist. Yeah, you do. But you do if you're if you're a songwriter as well. You have to be observant and and want to dig deeper into things and not just look at what's on the surface, you know. By the same token, when I started to study journalism, it wasn't what I thought it was because it was primarily about presenting just the surface and the who, what, why, when, how, where, blah, blah, that sort of stuff. But I was pretty naive, I think, when I left school and I just thought, you know, write, journalism is writing features and writing big, long, in-depth stories and analyses of, of what's going on. So, so so you didn't complete journalism? No. Right. So I, I, got, a, I got a message that <laughs> sticks in my mind during the summer. I, I don't know what uh, rock stars get on social media, but I got uh, old mate saying, you're nothing but a journalist who is a shit cricket commentator. And I thought about replying saying, you know what, mate, I'm not actually even a journalist. <laughs> but, so I don't have a journalism background either. Um, but thanks to old mate that sent me that message. I appreciated it. Back to Burn It in a moment. Next up on the show, a man that had me in absolute stitches when we recorded this episode. Former AFL footballer, TV star, and a dominator of all things radio, Ryan Fitzgerald, otherwise known as Fitzy. Fitzy is one of the best storytellers that we have ever had on the podcast. I was doing a tight five, Howie. Like right, I had a right, laughing right, right. and I, <laughs> I'm, da- I'm, dan- I'm dancing. I thought this is awesome. And then the door opens and I look through and it's Rodney Ede and it's all the senior players. They're having a meeting. And he, I think his words were, I was, Mickey O'Loughlin told me this afterwards. He come back in and he said, that Fitzgerald, he would have, he would have effing failed plasticine at kindergarten. (laughs) (laughs) And from that day... Howie, from that day, they installed a red light that, that flashes right. every time there's a meeting on, so you know that you have to be quiet it's outside. It's the light. It's the fitzy light, and it's still there. <laughs> That's my only legacy at the club. That's Ryan Fitzgerald next Tuesday on the Howie Games. Let's get back to Bernard. Hey, uh, music, when, when does it first... 
is it a musical household? When 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 do you, when do you you spoke about your brother? When do you first make a connection with music? When I was five or six, mum taught me piano for a year. Okay. Um, mum could play piano, like read read music and all that sort of stuff, but not really like mum and dad weren't particularly musical or anything like that. Um, my older brother played a bit of guitar, but no one else really kind of went after it. But I've found playing piano that I had pretty good ear, I guess, and I, I wasn't good at reading or anything like that. I would just learn the piece and then play it by ear sort of thing. So I did that until I was about 12 and then mum was, you know, you have to keep doing piano and I was like, I'm not doing piano anymore. I just want to go and play cricket because I had to come in from playing cricket with Paul, with my brother, to do piano practice at, you know, half an hour before dinner or whatever. That's a tough sell. Before tea. Um, Before tea, before the chops and the the peas and the carrots. Totally. It was exactly that. It was the most... (laughs) Normal Australian kind of upbringing in that sense. You get, were you allowed to have the tomato sauce on the chops on the side? I don't know about with chops. No, we had apple sauce with chops. Oh, that's a bit posh. But mum would make it out of apples. Right. And believe me, she was no gourmet. But right. it was, uh, but it was yeah, meat and three veg every night. So you, anyway, you were preferring the cricket. <clears throat> yeah. So I made a deal with mum when I was in grade seven, I think. I said, I'll, I'll keep learning piano if I just learned Beatles songs. So I learned Beatles songs for a year um, and that ended up, I think, being a really good education for me in terms of structure of songs and how you put them together and all that sort of stuff. Um, But then I just stopped when I was 13, went to high school and just said, nah. But then when I was 15, Paul, my brother, and I again... Um, we were obsessed with David Bowie and David Bowie David Bowie yeah so we got a Bowie book and my oldest brother's old guitar that was sitting around we started teaching ourselves out of that out of that book and that's huh. kind of that and a Beatles book that's how kind of I learned to play guitar just playing so cowboy chords what would have been the first time you played in front of anyone I don't mean family. Like yeah. at a well, I lost a, a bet. Or... I lost a bet. Oh, you so lost a bet. We, yeah, we used to drink at this pub called the RE in Tawong, um, and there was <laughs> and we drank there about three or four times a week, and we got to know lots of people there. And on must have been Tuesday nights or something. There was a there was a basketball team. The basketball courts were down the road. They they would come after after their games, and they just used to get flogged every week. You know, like. By forty points every week, and somehow I don't know. We became friends, and and we ended up. They ended up setting down the challenge. They said, "Okay, well, if we win a game, you have to get up and sing a song." Because uh, the guy who was who was playing guitar at the time, Matt James, was he was teaching me guitar as well. Um, okay. And so yeah, they won a game. I had to get up <laughs> and sing a song, and I was absolutely shitting myself. Right. Uh, and apparently went all right. I, I don't What'd know. you sing? Uh, How Can I Tell You by Cat Stevens. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So born romantic. Right. Yeah. Wherever I am, girl, I'm always walking with you. I'm always walking with you. And how'd you go? 
Oh, I, th- I guess it went all right. I I can't really remember. Um, <laughs> but I, I remember being terrified. I remember that part of it. But um, I think it, it went okay. And then when I was at uni, I was in an economics class. This is like the uncoolest genesis of a rock band ever. And Hoggy, Ian Hogue. Sort of lost me with the economics class, to <laughs> yeah, be honest, yeah. Bert. Um, Hoggy was in that class and we'd kind of seen each other around town. We knew each other from from going to gigs and stuff like that and um, we just got talking and went over to his place and had a jam and he, he'd he already, Powderfinger had just started a few months before as a three-piece and he was singing. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he asked me to come along and do a rehearsal, and that's how that all that all ended up happening. But by the way, I failed the economics class. So oh, that's, you failed that's the economics. Credi- right. Well, right th- where'd the name Powderfinger come from? Is that from a song? Yeah, it's a Neil Young song. It's the name of a okay. Neil Young song. And apparently, right. Bish, who was the drummer at the time, graffitied it on the toilets at the Regatta Hotel in in Tawong. And uh, and they were all like, yeah, that looks pretty good. That'll do. And that was the name? Yeah. So you're what, like 18, 19, yeah. et cetera at this stage? 20, um, yeah. 20. Okay, so you're 20. So say we're talking cricket. Um, Uzi's one of my favourite cricketers at the moment. Uzi at 20, as compared to how he just played in India, is a completely different batsman, right? Yeah. He, he, through training and progression, he's improved enormously, like yeah. like any professional athlete. You as a singer at 20, compared to the same thing, do you get better and better and better through practice and experience or not? Uh, I, I would say I'm definitely a better singer now than I was at 20. Um, yep. I was still working out how to use my voice probably till I was 30. Okay. So around about when we would have released uh, Odyssey Number no. 5 or something like that, I think I was probably starting to become a bit more comfortable with what I was capable of doing. Is that, and is that through trial and error, mate? Yeah, pretty much. And just also the, the early Powderfinger records were pretty, um, pretty heavy, so there was a lot of yelling going on. Um, and it was kind of going nowhere. So uh, once we simplified things and things became more melodic and more like what we ended up as as a band, um, I was able to kind of explore a little bit more what I could do with my voice. And, yeah, I mean, I've never really considered myself to be... I think of myself as a songwriter more than a singer. You know, okay. and so, so you think you're better at writing songs than singing the songs? I I don't know. I mean, I all I mean is I prefer that. I mean, okay. I I'm not a technically good singer or anything. There's you know people that run rings around me, but I think I kind of have worked out how to use my voice for the purposes of how what I'm using it for. But you like you rock though. Like you 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 engage the audience and. Like you're a rock star, you rock. Like you get up there and it's like this bloke's all over it. I don't know how it is technically, but as a performance artist. Yeah, right. I mean, well, yeah, I mean, and that's just experience. That's just from doing it for however long it is now, 30-something years, I guess. Um, But like you're saying about Uzi, for example, that's you just, I guess you, um, if you wanting to, you learn to eliminate your weaknesses as you go on. And, I mean, but that goes for anyone. You don't have to be a 
songwriter or a yeah. cricketer. You could be an accountant or a you know truck driver or whatever. Yeah, it just absolutely. depends on how you approach life, I suppose. And if you're curious and you're looking to improve what you're doing, then then just it's natural to do that, you know. So early days of Powderfinger, tell me about the, the struggle. So when Uzi's playing grade cricket in Queensland, he's not a star yet. When when you blokes are, I don't know, doing a few gigs, like how tight is money, how are you getting around? This oh, is not a private jet operation, I'm presuming. Absolutely not. No, so I joined in 1989 and we got signed, I think, in 1993 and we made a record in 94. Um, which was a flop, and so but we were touring. So in those early days, from about ninety one onwards, yep. we would we bought a an Econovan, and we'd just <laughs> load it up with everything, and we'd drive from Brisbane to Adelaide to Melbourne. That's not rockstar to Sydney, <laughs> no mate. Um, and we did that. At one stage, I mean, I don't know if this has turned into mythology or not, but at one stage we were doing it pretty much every six weeks. We'd go and do that that drive to Adelaide, Melbourne and Sydney each for a weekend yep. and then play around Brisbane as well and do four shows each weekend sort of thing. Um, and they were all small, you know, they were pubs. They were like a couple hundred people or something like that. And that went on for quite a while. We, we started to get a pretty big following in Brisbane um, but it hadn't kind of translated much elsewhere. And that kept going until um, we released Double Allergic, which had Pick You Up on it, which was kind of our first hit. Uh, and until that time, we were all working as well. You know, I was mowing what, lawns. What? Hang on, what? hang on, yeah. hang on. You were mowing lawns? Yeah, so I started mowing lawns when I was about 12. Paul and I, my brother, had a, we had a little, we just used to mow lawns around the neighbourhood. Right. Like pushing our mower down the road with the rake and the edger and broom over the and shoulder. And the old Victor. Rover, I think it was, actually. Oh, the Rover, they had to put the two-stroke in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this so, is a conivan of mowing lawns. I, I haven't quite got to yeah, rock stardom yet, but I'm enjoying the journey. Um, so, so you were doing this to fund your rock and roll lifestyle, like cutting lawns. Yeah. All of us were. And, I mean, most artists have to do that, you know. Yep. And especially even more so these days, I think they have to be working really hard. I think eventually we got um, we got on the dole. This is in the 90s sometime. and But there was a, a thing called the New Enterprise Industry Scheme or something, the Nice Scheme or something like that, where if you had a new business, you could go to the... DSS and say, look, this is our business. This is what we're trying to do. We need to be able to do this as well as receive the doll. And we somehow qualified for it. Good. Um, and I think so we got paid the doll, but you still had to apply for jobs. You still had okay. to go around and apply for jobs. So we'd be driving around, you know, doing those six weekly trips. Yeah. And this is pre-mobile phone, obviously. So you'd be in the phone book in, you know, in a Telstra booth in Newtown, <laughs> looking up some mechanic and writing that down on your dial form, and then taking it into DSS. 
<laughs> so that went on for a while, and then and then once Pick You Up came out, and we started to do bigger shows around the place, and we started to get played a lot on Triple J. And then that kind of transferred pretty quickly to other commercial radio as well. Okay. The weird thing with Powderfinger was that we always we were always just try, scrambling forward. We we didn't really stop and appreciate what was happening most of the time. And and we all of us have kind of talked about this that now you look back on what was going on and how crazy some stuff was that now's the time when you kind of reflect on it. That is the end of Bernard Fanning Part A. So much more on the flip side, Part B. Don't be missing it. 